Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Remembering Wars, Waging Peace. It's based upon the lectionary reading for Sunday, J July the 6th, 2014. By a coincidence of the calendar, this week we remember two violent revolutions that shook the world. Here in the United States, Americans will celebrate Independence Day on the 4th of July. Way back on July the 2nd, 1776, the Second Continental Congress of the 13 American colonies approved a resolution to declare independence from Great Britain. Henceforth, they would be a sovereign nation of 13 United States. Two days later, on July 4th, the Congress approved the Declaration of Independence that explained their vote. This national celebration always feels awkward and ambiguous to me. This is partly for personal reasons. Both my wife and my daughter were born on the 4th of July, so I'm naturally more excited about their birthdays than the jet flyovers at baseball games. But there are also deeper reasons for my unease. This week, the entire world will also celebrate the 100th anniversary of the start of World War I. On June 28th, 1914, Gavrilo Princip assassinated Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria in Sarajevo. By the time the fighting ended with armistice of November 11, 1918, more than 16 million people had been slaughtered. Another 20 million people were wounded. Both of these celebrations will be occasions for parades, picnics, political speeches, and especially displays of patriotism. There's nothing wrong with all that. And perhaps our human propensity to greed and violence makes some wars good and even necessary. But God calls his people to look beyond superficial celebrations and jingoistic rhetoric. The earliest followers of Jesus, and especially his detractors, used the political language of kingship to describe who he was, what he said, and what he did. Every king enjoys a reign, a rule, and a kingdom. Jesus was no exception. His very first words of public ministry proclaim that in him, the kingdom of God is at hand. But his ideas about kingship radically subvert our normal political narratives. After three years of preaching, teaching, and healing that focused on the poor, the imprisoned, the blind, and the oppressed, Jesus' family declared him insane. The religious establishment hated him, 
and the political authorities had had enough. And so Rome deployed all the brutal means at its disposal to crush an insurgent movement. Rendition, interrogation, torture, mockery, humiliation, and then a sadistic execution designed as a calculated social deterrent to any other troublemakers who might challenge imperial authority and disturb the Pax Romana. In a sermon at Cornell University from 1969, William Stringfellow observed that we often say that Jesus was an innocent victim. No, says Stringfellow, Jesus was justly accused as a guilty criminal. He was not a mere nonconformist, not just a protester, more than a militant, not only a dissident, not simply a dissenter, but a criminal. And even more, the most dangerous and reprehensible sort of criminal. Why? Because he threatened the nation in a revolutionary way. This is exactly what Luke describes in his Passion narrative. Jesus was executed for three reasons, says Luke, and here I quote his gospel. We found this fellow subverting the nation, opposing payment of taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. In John's gospel, the angry mob warned Pilate, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. So, in short, Jesus is subverting our nation. He opposes Caesar. You can't befriend both Jesus and Caesar. They were right, probably more right than they knew or could have imagined. Because the Roman state always made a show of military force during the Jewish Passover, when pilgrims thronged to Jerusalem to celebrate their political liberation from Egypt centuries earlier, Marcus Borg and Crossan imagined not just one, but two political processions entering Jerusalem that Good Friday morning in the spring of A.D. 30. In a bold parody of imperial politics, King Jesus descended the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem from the east in fulfillment of Zechariah's ancient prophecy from this week's lectionary. Look, your king is coming to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And from the west, the Roman governor, Pilate, entered Jerusalem with all the pomp of state power. Pilate's brigades showcased Rome's military might, power, and glory. Jesus' triumphal entry, by stark contrast, was an anti-imperial and anti-triumphal counter-procession of peasants that proclaimed an alternate and subversive community of the kingdom of God. This was not a spontaneous event. 
It was a deeply ironic, highly symbolic, and deliberately provocative act. It was an enacted parable, or maybe street theater, that dramatized Jesus' subversive mission and message. He didn't ride a young donkey because he was too tired to walk or because he wanted a good view of the crowds. The Oxford scholar George Caird characterizes Jesus' triumphal entry as more like a planned political demonstration than the religious celebration that we sentimentalize today on Palm Sunday. But it doesn't stop there. Believers worship Jesus not only as King of the Jews, but also as the King of Kings, the King of the Ages, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. When God raised Jesus from the dead, writes Paul, he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. In what ways does Jesus subvert our political status quo? The fuller passage in this week's reading from Zechariah 9 points the way. He writes that God's kingdom is one of peace and not war. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim, and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. We should abhor war and not glorify it. Zechariah says that God's kingdom is also universal rather than nationalistic. No nation is exceptional before him, and no nation is excluded from his love. Zechariah writes, His rule will extend from sea to sea, and from the river Euphrates to the end of the earth. And so God's kingdom subverts every sort of national vanity. Finally, if you go to our website, there's an attached video from Johnny Cash which makes clear that Christians anticipate God's judgment. We hope for some kind of divine account accountability for all the violence inflicted on so many people around the world. Nothing good will be lost. Nothing evil will endure. Human suffering will find divine solace. For Christians who believe that God loves all peoples and nations without exception or favoritism, and who wish every nation peace rather than violence, the anniversaries of the American Revolution and World War I invite us to deeper reflections beyond patriotic rhetoric. Zechariah's peace poetry invites us to imitate his God and to love all the world like he does.
For books this week, I review a short biography. The author is Paul Johnson. The title, Mozart, A Life. New York Viking, 2013, 164 pages. With over 40 books and numerous awards to his credit, the British Catholic Paul Johnson is one of today's preeminent historians, journalists, and public intellectuals. This book is similar to a half a dozen other short biographies, about 200 pages or less, that Johnson has already written about Darwin, Socrates, Napoleon, Churchill, Jesus, and George Washington. As with these other figures, there are thousands of works about Mozart. Johnson estimates about 2,000 books and upwards of 8,000 Mozart monographs. So this isn't a substitute for longer critical works about Mozart, like those by Robert Gutman and Maynard Solomon, but rather it's a survey for a general audience. Johnson is a capable and confident scholar who writes with lively prose. There were no footnotes or bibliography. The book reads like a long essay. Johnson does offer his own corrections to standard Mozart history. For example, he says that Salzburg was not a backwater, but enjoyed a strong music community. Mozart's father wasn't a tyrant, but a devoted man who sacrificed his own career for his son. Nor was Mozart sickly or a spendthrift with debt problems, at least not by the standards of that time and place. All his debts, for example, were promptly repaid after his death. For Johnson, Mozart was a joyful genius with a generous spirit. He concludes on the very last page of his biography. Mozart had misfortunes and many disappointments in a life of constant hard work, lived at the highest possible level of creative concentration. But his warm spirit always bubbled. He loved his God, his family, his friends, and above all, his work, which he equated with service to God. And that was all a reasonable man or an unreasonable one, for that matter, could wish for. God bless him. Paul Johnson, Mozart, A Life. For films this week, I review The Grand Budapest Hotel from 2014. The director, Wes Anderson's nostalgic look at a bygone era, is set in an elegant hotel in the fictitious Republic of Zubrauka during the 1930s. At the center of this dramatic comedy are the concierge, Monsieur Gustave, and his sidekick and protege, the lobby boy, Zero Mustafa. When Gustave becomes the heir of one of his patrons' great wealth and is subsequently framed for her murder, he and Zero must run for their lives. 
The film begins in the present, when the Grand Budapest is but a threadbare resemblance of its former grandeur. And then it ends in the past, when we learn how Zero came to own the hotel, and why he chose to keep it despite the ravages of time. As you would expect in a Wes Anderson film, the color, the music, and the whimsy make this a pleasure to watch. The Grand Budapest Hotel. And finally, for poetry and for honoring the 4th of July celebrations here in America, we've posted the famous poem by Martin Luther King, I Have a Dream, which he delivered on August the 28th, 1963. Let us not wallow in the valley of despair, I say to you, my friends. And so, even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama, with its vicious racists, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification. One day, right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted Every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain, and the crooked places will be made straight. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. I have a dream from 1963 in Martin Luther King, Jr. <clears throat> Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, July the 6th, 2014. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.